hey y'all, before I get into this conversation and share this amazingly beautiful um, raw story with you, I just want to give a quick a note that there's some sensitive things in this conversation. Um, you might need to be in an emotional place to be able to receive the gift of Greg's story. And I just wanted to let you know that it might not be best to have children in the room um, or if you have experienced trauma or are healing any parts of yourself, um, this could be sensitive to you. So I just wanted to get that quick disclaimer before we dive in. Uh, hey y'all, welcome back to Flex This. I'm your host, Jen Hoffman. Uh, today I have on Greg Alsasser. Um, yeah. He is a published playwright of eight plays, the novel, The Field Trip, and the creator writer of the award-winning television series, The Adventures of Roman and George. He's also been known to hypnotize a chicken, which I wanna hear more about <laughs> on YouTube. He has three sons and lives in Southern California. He is a teacher in Los Angeles County for 30 years and teaches English. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I really do appreciate that. I don't get a chance to tell my story uh, very often. And so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Oh, that's what this is 100% about is just sharing the beauty and the sacredness of being alive in all the ways that even though it's messy and complicated, it, somehow we're all connected in all that mess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to start off, um, I've been asking guests if they'd be willing to share one, how do you name this journey of growth, transformation, whatever that might be, and how did you get to using that language? Okay. Yeah, um, I, I don't, and that was the one question I had a hard time with. I'm like, I don't know if I have a name just because there's so many facets of my story. You know, if, if my story was just, um, someone's at the door. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. We have the ugly, okay. the really the ugliest doorbell ever. But yeah, you know, when I when I came out, I could just say it was a coming out story, but it's just so much more than that because I am a dad and I had I dealt with that and I, I'm a Christian and I was dealing with that and I was married and dealing with that. So there's just so many facets of the story other than just I came out. Yeah. You know, probably because I'm older and I've lived a little longer. So I don't really have at times I've used cuss words to describe my journey <laughs> and at times I'm here on myself. So I guess it depends on what day you catch me. Yeah. Today I'm at peace. Today I'm at peace and, and I'm enjoying that moment. So, yeah. I love you um, touching on how the journey is changing and the language changes because we are forever changing and we are forever redefining who we are and what aligns with us. Um, which actually is a question that I can ask you about. What familial things in your life have you had to either expand upon or let go of to help you on this journey of figuring out who, who is Greg? What is my truth? And how do I want to align in that? Yeah, well, at first when I went through this, you know, I, I just, I, I did, I chalked it up to a midlife crisis. Um, but then I realized that it was more of an identity crisis at 47 years old, a little bit later in the game. You know, most people figure out that they're gay and they come out, the majority of people in their 20s, that, that's the common age. And I waited a while. It wasn't that I didn't know I, I wasn't gay. I mean, I knew, I knew I was gay before we had a word for it because I grew up in a very conservative Christian household. And so we really didn't talk about that. And we were sheltered, not in a bad way. It wasn't like my parents were protected, but we were sheltered from the world. We didn't watch a lot of TV and, and 
everything was carefully selected. So I knew there was just something different. And then once I kindly could figure out what it was, I didn't, it, it's hard to explain, but I didn't let my brain go there. Okay. I didn't allow my brain to say in the head, the eighties, you're gay or you like men over women. What I did is I acknowledged attractiveness and I just let it stop right there because that was not an option. I grew up in, like I said, in a Republican Christian conservative household. I didn't, I, it sounds stupid, but I really didn't think I had options. You're like, no, you can't, you, you can't do that. So you might as well um, start dealing with it now. And then that when I got older and got to college, that's when I started to go into reparative conversion and aversion therapy. And I did that on and off for 15, I mean, even up six months before I moved out of my house, I was still reading books on, you know, reparative therapy and I'm still trying. And I just gave up one day. Um, so. For our listeners, I'm a gay person. So I know what you're talking about. For somebody that's straight, they probably have no idea what you're talking about. Could you explain what that therapy is and what the goal of it is? Yeah. Well, here's the cool way of describing it. Why I, my brother had a teacher when he was little that wanted to lose weight. And it was really popular. I don't know if they still do it, but she went to a weight loss clinic where they took the foods that she really likes, her junk food that was, and, and what they did is they put gross things. I think her, her thing was donuts and they put in um, ketchup and mustard and mashed it up and made her eat it until it made her nauseous. And they made her do that over and over with the idea, which is called aversion therapy, making her associate nausea and disgust with her favorite food and i went to a counselor when i was in my 20s who first introduced it and said we could do that kind of reparative therapy um, with you because it's been proven to help those who don't want to be gay and i and it wasn't my parents forcing me they i mean they didn't want me to be gay for sure but i didn't either at the time and so i was all for it and so I went to through aversion therapy for a while. And the most common the thing that she used with me was she had me take out pictures of women that I did find attractive and um, stare at them a lot and imagine me being with them. That was part of it. But then I also had to be avert. I had to find disgust with men because that's who I was attracted to. So she would have me take out pictures of men I found attractive. And she would, she told me to get uh, feces and to put it in a jar or whatever and, and smell the feces while I was thinking and imagining being with men. So I did that for two wow. months. I, I put it in a mason jar and I put it in, even in my backpack. Sometimes I took it to go. Um, wow. and, and I never threw up, which was the goal is to get yourself to barf so that while you're doing it, but I would get nauseous and I would get sick. And, but eventually I was realizing this wasn't working. And so I went more into reparative therapy, which is let's find out where your sexuality went wrong and let's find out the cause of it and fix it. And the big, the big um, push in those days, which is over now is it's, um, you, if you were a male and you were homosexual, you had a bad relationship with your father there was no room for maybe it was no you must have had some bad relationship with your father your mother could have been overbearing or you were molested that was the christian um explanation for why men were gay and if women were gay it's because you had a terrible relationship with your mother and 
And so that's what I studied and that's what I went through and which there's no evidence whatsoever. And especially now that I've come out and I've talked to so many gay men who they're like, I, it wasn't a perfect relationship with my parents, but it was wonderful. And it's still, and I was not, I was just told that it was the opposite. And my parents wanted me to go to this therapy. And so they supported me, but eventually they got bitter that I came and blamed my dad for everything I did. I went I blame my dad for my sexuality and he hated that and then he went to therapy and the therapist like it's your fault but I was like you wanted me to get you wanted me to get fixed and not be homosexual so this is this is what I'm studying so I just did that for a long time I, I actually counseled with the head of Exodus International which is the largest ex-gay network it is closed now when they realized that they could not change people's sexuality in the mid 2000s and some of the leaders were leaving to go be with same-sex partners uh <laughs> they realized this is not this is not working and so they shut it down there are still pockets of ex-gay ministries uh throughout the united states still um but now the church has changed their mind the church used to say you can be healed god can heal you if you just do these things now the church is saying it's just, it irritates me beyond belief because they just switch it up and they said well no you can't change but you must remain celibate it's it's not your fault you didn't ask for homosexual desires but it's not anything you've done but you must abstain and it would just for me even think about it as an adult that you know, straight men who were married and had children and, and wives, and they would tell people who were gay, you can't do this to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, you cannot be homosexual. And as they would leave you to be, to go be with their wife and their family and leave the, leave the gay guy all by himself with no hope for love, because you couldn't, and no hope for a future where a partner could take care of you, you die alone. And their message, at least certain the churches that I've gone to, is just pray and pray more, read your Bible more, get closer to God. And I, I just, I, I, even when I was in the closet as a conservative Christian, I just thought that was unfair. And I married. So I went ahead and married and followed the rules of my church and my parents. I, I, I'm a people pleaser. And I did not want to upset anyone. And so I got married. And we eventually had three children. And um, once my kids kind of got older and they didn't need dad as much, I, I started to get lonely. And that's when I had the crisis. And I was realizing the books weren't working. The last thing I did, the last thing I did was um, I read a book, another one. And it was like, you, you need to have healthy relationships with men. So you need to do it by bonding with them and it's always through sports you know <laughs> sports and physical activity and healthy touching and so I and I, I actually I they're like you've got to get your masculinity built up so I went out and bought a huge jeep and I got it I got it lifted and I put the big fat wheels I got a big tattoo I I, I became friends with a, with a guy who was straight and it was a healthy friendship and he was into like triathlons and so I did that and I started to get big and I started doing steroids to make myself even bigger and more masculine and none of it worked none of it and it just I just got sadder and sadder and I had already had a mental hospital visit at one point I had tried to kill myself growing up twice wow I just was done 
So I just told my wife one day, I can't do this anymore. And it's hard, it's hard to talk about. It, it's hard because I keep, I just relive the moment I had to tell my children. Mm. And it's still, it's still not easy, you know, when I had, when I realized, you know, that I left them, that was really hard. Yeah. Wow. I want to thank you. Um, sure. This is a privilege to sit in this space, to be sharing space with you and hearing your story and the courage it took for you to one, step into your truth and um, two, to share it with me and the listeners. I, um, I'm really grateful, Greg. Thank you. I, I, I really appreciate you doing that. Um, I, if I can help somebody, I know that's such a cliche. If I can help one person, it'd be worth it. I, I, to be honest, I don't know if helping five people is worth the damage that I've done to my children. But at the very least, I have to try and help people because the damage has been done. I can't do anything about that. So I've got to help people. Now I'm a high school teacher, so I'm lucky because there are kids that I know that are going to come to me and, and I'm going to be able to help them. So I'm pleased about that. Yeah, yeah. definitely. I mean, full transparency. That's why I wanted to do this podcast is I didn't see adults talking about hard stuff. You know, as a gay kid, I didn't see anybody gay. And then I look the way I look incredibly androgynous presenting um, masculine and no one looked like me. No women dressed like me. No, everything that I felt on the inside was nowhere in the world. And, you know, the start of this journey, the birth of this podcast was, you know, working with children and realizing like they're not broken. We're breaking them. We're telling them they shouldn't be something. We're telling them by how we model our behaviors. We tell them by modeling how we sell ourselves short and that we don't honor our truth, that we hide parts of ourselves and that we don't engage in meaningful conversations and just stay at a surface level. Kids are already there. It's yeah. by watching adults that they don't get to where we're at. And then, you know, 30, I'm 37, you're 47. And now we're unpacking this stuff now. And we could just normalize it when they're little and we wouldn't have the world that we live in because they don't see the things that we see based off of fear and lies and um, just a fallacy of, of this idea that we're separate and that people don't have value and worth if they love differently, look differently, um, praise differently, worship differently. Like that's such bullshit. And that's why this is so important to me is because I do think it could just take one person hearing parts of your story to see themselves. And that's what matters. That maybe that gives them the permission to say, I can be who the hell I am. And it's not a mistake. Certainly the next generation will have it a lot easier than you and I did. And certainly you and I had it easier than the generation previous. Right. You know, I, I, of course, I'm watching everything about being gay in the 50s and the 60s, and I just I'm I'm so grateful that I'm in a time where I can wear my you know rainbow shirt or something and at the gym and not have to worry about anybody beating me up in my area. But you know what? You, you used to wear. I want to go back to because you used to wear broken, and that was the the word that the church would reserve for gay people, and I couldn't can't stand it they would say you're a broken person everybody else is a sinner in the church which they acknowledge that everybody's a sinner they got the label sinner we got broken and sinner broken is such a devastating word to use because even you know even if you take something if you take a glass that's 
fallen down and you put it back together, it's still broken. You'll always see the remnants of that. Mm-hmm. And they would always tell us, you're just broken. And one of the biggest lies that they told me that I still have trouble and my fiance works with me constantly on this is we were always told by parents, Christians, gay relationships will never work. You're taking, they would say, you're taking two broken people and putting them together. There's no way. And so even when I started dating after I moved out, I'm like, oh, it'll never last because gay relationships don't. And you got to be honest. You've seen, there's a lot of, there's in the gay, in the gay world, there's a lot of people just going from one person to the next. There's a lot of that. But I stopped looking at that and I really started to focus on people who have been in relationships for 10, 15, I know a couple to 25 years. Mm-hmm. And so that lie has helped. I mean, that was a huge lie. And I started to think about marriage and I'm engaged. We're getting married in two months and I don't fear as much. Well, it's just going to end because you're thinking you're going to yeah. And that was, that was a big lie. The broken thing got to me and that it'll, you'll never be happy. You'll never be happy. If you're not following Jesus, you'll never be happy. But I used, I tell people, I followed Jesus. I did. And I was never happy then, yeah. even though I was following. I had a get out of hell free card, but on earth, I was miserable. Yeah. The only thing that ever brought me happy was my children. But again, they have to grow up and live their own lives and leave mom and dad by themselves. And I just said, I've got another 30 or 40 years left on this earth. I can't do it. And my therapist said to me, when I, that was like my 28th, 29th therapist, therapist of my life, this one said, and he was a Christian too, and he said I needed to accept who I was. And he said, listen, you're, you're headed down a bad road. Do your kids want a gay dad or a dead dad? And I said, that was the aha moment for me. I said, I hope they want, I hope they wanted a life dad. So I I did move out and about two months into it, I felt too guilty and I missed my kids so much. And I did come home for one night and I said, fine, I'll do the very best I can. And me and the boys and my wife, we were just all fighting. We were all saying horrible things to each other. And this was just two years ago, two and a half years ago. And I went into the room and I, I took an overdose purposely. And I woke up about 36 hours later um, in, in another mental institution mm. and the way they, they let me out early is they said if you promise not to go back to that house you you can't you cannot we'll let you out and I made a promise not to try that again and or not to go home and realize I had to accept this and try to work on my relationship with my boys as much as possible which was difficult because of course they were embarrassed. Of course, they're teenage boys and they were embarrassed of that's gay. I totally understand. And two of my, my oldest boys went to the school that I teach at. My oldest was in my class while all the kids are finding out your dad's gay and he's in my class. I'm teaching the great Gatsby and talking about how Nick has an affair on Daisy and I, I was dating already. It was a disaster for those boys. I get it. And, um, but it went slowly downhill as I was working and they were getting over the shock and we were working on it. My ex-wife would have none of it. She did not want them to have a relationship with me whatsoever. And so she, she worked them real hard. And um, I understand she was upset, but she did work them real hard. She even talked about anybody that I dated, including my fiance, he might molest my youngest. And that kind of 
kind of scared him because, you know, gay people, that's what we do. We just molest children. <laughs> um, and I haven't seen my middle son in over two years and I haven't seen my youngest in almost a year. And it's, it's difficult. It, the, it, you know, there are, there's a, people say, well, you're living with your decisions. And I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, every decision has consequences. And they say, people say, well, would you go back and change your mind now? I, I wouldn't because I can't live for my kids, even as much as I love my can. I, yeah. I had to live for myself, but I, it, so, it sounds selfish, but I had to, I, I wanted to live. I wanted to enjoy life. I wanted to find love. I just never had had that. And I just desperately was not of the mindset where I want to be alone. I wanted to experience it. I taught literature for gosh sakes. And I taught the concept of love and I never understood it ever until I met the man I'm going to marry. And then I went, oh, that's why things like Romeo and Juliet are such a big deal. <laughs> you know, I yeah. had a head knowledge of it. I did not yeah. ever feel it. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, um, I just think that your story is a, just a in-depth glimpse of what it means to own your truth and sometimes the sacrifices that it makes inside of that. And when you don't, what sacrifices are inside of that and just how unhealthy they really are for us to not be who we are because God, universe, spirit, whatever you name it, whatever deity or no deity, um, you have a purpose. Everything about your truth is handpicked for only you. And if you don't lean into that, that has a sacrifice. We as a species lose out on what only you can do, but you can only do it to the highest capacity when you're living in your truth, whatever that might be. And uh, yeah, that, that's a good point, because once I did start living in, in my truth, I, I had custody of my youngest. I still do. But he just doesn't come. He just, just didn't want to see me. I'm sure he's afraid of what would happen possibly here with my fiance. But um, I had him for a year and I was the best. I, was, I always thought I was a pretty darn good dad because I was happy and I was at peace with who I was for the first time. I was a much better father. I was much more. When he was here, him and I, I was much more in tune with what, instead of being in the La La Land, you know, the last two or three years of living there, I was going to bed. I would get up, I would go to the gym, I'd go to the work, I'd go to work, I'd go to the gym, I'd come home, I'd eat by 4.30, take a sleeping pill and be in a glass of wine and be asleep by 5.30 almost every night. And my kids are in there playing their Xbox and stuff. And they, and that's how I lived for, that was no father. Yeah. And once I accepted who I was, and the weight had been lifted. I was happy. I was a better dad. Yeah. And that's why I said my kids are really missing out now because I'm a much better human and father. I'm a better teacher some days. <laughs> you know, I'm just a better human, I think. Yeah. So. And it's, you know, a reminder for me too, you know, again, being a gay person, I obviously don't have the exact same story. None of us do, but parts relate. Like when I was a kid growing up, um, when I first came out, it was told to me because I wanted to be a college basketball coach. And those have a whole bunch of stereotypes being a female, um, that college basketball coaches that are gay recruit for the very reason that you're describing is that there's a stereotype. Really? I've never heard that. 
I mean, it doesn't surprise me that that's <laughs> what, but I've never heard that. That was the wow. that was some of the adult voices that were concerned for my future of me being out as a person um, and be, wanting to be a basketball coach, working with young girls, and I was so terrified that someone might even think that of me, that my boundaries with my players were so high that I didn't really build the connection with them that they deserve to have from an adult person in their life, trying to support them and coach them and help them learn to be really great individuals. They didn't know I was gay. I hid all of my personal life from them. They barely knew anything about me. Um, and that was terrifying. You know, I, I went to a, my, I was the going for graduate school while I was coaching and my, the school I went to was just a D2 school. It wasn't very big and there wasn't a lot of places to eat. So I knew the places where they typically hung out because I could listen to them and I wouldn't eat there. If I was going to, a, to get a drink with a coworker, I would be very specific about where I'd go because it never wanted to see my players. And it's a prison. It is a damn prison. Yeah. 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 That's funny you say that too, because I, as a high school teacher, I take Europe trips every year and I take kids to Europe. And there's never been a question when everybody thought I was straight. There was never a question about me. It mostly girls travel because more girls travel than boys. Never a question about me taking girls on a trip. Not. But as soon as I came out, I had a parent hold their son. They were wow. Christian. And again, I, I hate to, I, I, when I talk about Christian in the church, I, I don't want to disparage the whole institution. The church is not a building. The church are people. And they're just some really warped thinking i was one of them my gosh i i voted for prop eight and i remember voting for prop eight and deep inside knowing that it was gay i'm like even prop eight i went wait a minute why do we care so much about what people do with their private lives even if you don't like it and you think it's a sin or whatever why why do we care so much about people's private lives yeah. and um and they say it's the denigration of society and it's a it's gonna be a moral collapse i'm like actually it's, i think it's the opposite i think if you support marriage then people are monogamous for the most part and they raise families and that's more traditional than anything else. And so I know I'm, I keep going off on tangents, but you know, I, I hear stories like what you said about being a basketball coach and what people think. And it just, it just really, it, it just angers me. I think I'm in the anger stage sometimes. Yeah. You know, he was a boy and the, the unspoken that nobody would say is those parents are afraid you will go in and molest him. Mm -hmm. because you're because and, of lies around gay people on top of yeah, that of course of course and there still is we had a we had, we're having a gay picnic and they raised a gay flag in our city this is a suburb of los angeles and i went on the facebook group page for our city in downey and the, i hate to use hate it's it's such an overused cliched word but it was pretty close to hate the thing i was shocked i went but this is 2020 i have no idea that's how naive I was that so many people just find us abhorrent yep. because we choose to live or love somebody of the same sex. It's, it's bizarre world. And I was in it. I was one of them, you know, so I, I, maybe I get it. Maybe I don't. I, I, I don't know. I'm still learning. And yeah. I'm still, I'm getting motivated. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, again, this is why these conversations are so important to me because my inner world is reflecting how I see my outer circumstances. And if I'm threatened by another relationship, that's really about you. That's not about the relationship. That's about your belief system, not about what's happening in front of you, because it doesn't impact you. It doesn't impact your worth unless somebody is physically doing harm or verbally or whatever 
directed at you, it's not coming to you. That's a you problem. Whatever it is that's making you upset is just a mirror for you to look at yourself. That's how I see it. And I do think in a lot of ways being gay, that's the gift of this is that it's allowed me to realize like your beef is not about me. Your idea of love, in fact, is quite a bit of a lie because <laughs> a lot of rom-coms aren't reality either. So let's be serious there. Yeah. Um, you know, you said something about like you couldn't find love. And, you know, for me, something that I've learned about what the beauty of Prop 8. So I'm a, I'm a silver lining person. And what I've learned from the things that people have tried to use to prevent me from my authentic, authentic self, my truth, loving my partner, being who I am is all you've done is given me a hurdle to just prove the worth and the love of what I have. And what I mean by that is before it, it, you know, Obama passed, I think 2014, that we could get married. I had to know deeply that when I loved someone and I chose to spend my life with them, it wasn't a legal document that was binding them to me. It was a choice. It was a choice, an act of choice every day for showing up for somebody. And a lot of gay people had that for 70 years and never had any of the legal rights around visiting their partner when they're in the hospital, having any say in some of their health care, a lot of other things that marriage offers you right as a, as a binding contract. But for me, I always looked at it as, well, I'm, if I'm never going to get married, then I better make sure that I am setting myself up to be the partner I want to be for somebody and that the relationship we build upon isn't based off of, you know, let's get married as fast as possible and do all the things we're supposed to do. It needs to be foundational. And, you know, a lot of the gay couples that I know feel the same way, at least around my age, maybe different for when they're younger, but marriage wasn't an option. So to build a relationship, to build love was on a lot of the truths that we weren't even seeing in the straight world, to be honest, to begin with these, I, these fallacies of ideas of, you know, taking time and investing and nurturing into love in a way that honored both people. And um, yeah, I mean, that's the gift. That's what I think, because how I show up in my relationships and how I show up for myself is just what somebody wanted to do to wipe me off the planet only enhanced me to want to be here more. I, yeah, I, and I'm getting there too. I'm getting, I don't, I don't I, I'm really big about, I'm so sorry over. I'm still conservative. I have conservative ideas. I have liberal ideas. So I cannot label myself as conservative or liberal. I never label myself as Republican or Democrat. You know, I always say that I'm too liberal for my Christian friends and I'm too conservative for my non-Christian friends. So I basically know what's happening with me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but I, I couldn't, I can't get over it. I don't even know where I was going with that. Um, the, the conservative still say to me, even the ones that love me, they say, your love that you have for your fiance, Abraham, it's not a real love. It's a, it's companionship. I hear that a lot. You have a strong sense of companion you want. It's a good, it's not a friend, but it's not what love really is because I can only be mean a man and a woman. That's it. I, but go live your life and be happy, but I'm just letting you know it's not real. And it will. So I, I thought about that and I, you know, I was married to my wife for 26 years. And in the year and a half that I've known my fiance, I've never showed another human being outside of my children sacrificial love that I've showed him. 
And I said, if that's not love, wanting to have my way. See, when I was married to my wife, when I wanted to have my way, I'd get my way. I was the man. I was in charge, right? So I just pretty much got my way. And I just coasted in life with not having to love. Just I just showed up. That's it. That's all I did in my marriage. I showed up. And now I'm having to live for somebody else and letting him have his way and not getting my way. And I've never lived like that. And uh, this, how anybody can tell me that this is not a real love. How can anybody, they don't know me. They're not inside me. They don't know. They don't know what I'm feeling. And my actions show that this is real love. And so I get really frustrated at that as well. The concept of love and who you can love. Yeah. Well, and, and again, for somebody to say that it isn't, what is it about the way you're loving your fiance that is a threat to those people? Because that's all that that is. Yeah, what I, I did, even then, like I said, even when I was in the closet and conservative Christian, I still used to think it's really not bugging anybody. It's not bothering me. You can, you can, sit, we can have a good debate on abortion. You and I, anybody can have abortion because you can argue that it involves somebody else, right? Depending on what you believe about, you know, a, a child in the womb. But with gay couples, how is that affecting your next door neighbor? How does that affect your parents? How does that affect society at large? It does not in the least. And I just, I, I know that you said it. I think I took it for granted that there was no work left. I, I go, oh, people say gays don't have the same rights. I'm like, yes, they do. Come on, this point, we all have the same rights. Knock it off. And I'm starting to realize, not really. Yeah. We might have the same rights. We can still go into a store and then do the same thing. We can live our lives. We can get married now. But when you're treated less than continually, mm-hmm. that's not the same rights. Mm-hmm. Or ideas that, you know, I've been working on an article at work and talking about the ideas of professionalism, which was really just based off of a straight white man's agenda. And you have to, you have, if you aren't that, then you're not inherently worth the same value. And that, you know, where did we decide that how you cut your hair, how, if you have tattoos or not, the length of your nails, how does that decide if someone is brilliant? Is that a deciding factor? And how many people in the LGBTQ plus community can't fully show up because maybe they're non-binary, maybe they're trans. Mm. And you're saying that they, they aren't professional because they don't meet the, a narrative that we've, we've normalized that that's what professionalism quote unquote is like, how many people are we missing out on their brilliance every damn day because we don't let them sit at the table. And hopefully when, at least when it comes to LGBTQ, I acronyms mixed up um um hopefully we won't be having this conversation in 40 years you know i really because society you said you talked about tattoos and you, you talked about how you know certain people are left out when society changes and accepts something look at now everybody has tattoos you, you can have a tattoo and go into a job interview with no worries now mm-hmm. you can have an earring and, and you know 20 years ago you couldn't so hopefully society will change but when hey, let me tell you what the, the church is such a large institution in our country if, if it, the church changes you'll see a lot of the society come along 70 percent of americans claim to be christian so that's a huge leap you know before world war ii the church's stance were if you were divorced you could not go to church at most churches in america if you were remarried mm-hmm. because that is still it's just Bible. you are an adulterer forever if you marry if you divorce remarry well, after World War II, our divorce rates skyrocketed. I, I think that's when it went to like 40%. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> the church looked at that and went, we can't afford to lose 40% of yeah. our membership. Right. And so they changed. Now they just say, you know what? You're forgiven for that divorce. And even though you've remarried, you are forgiven. And so if tomorrow 40% of the church said they were LGBTQ, the church would change immediately because they're not going to lose their people. But right now we're such a minority. What, what, what does it care if we're mad at them? What do we care if we speak out against the bigger institutions that are against our rights or our freedoms or the ability to love? We're just a small, we're a small minority. But we're not and, though. And I would venture to say we're not. And not. Not to, sorry, I get like fired up, not to cut you off, but like, I don't think we are. You know what happened is that institution disowned people and hurt them in ways that they are still healing from. And they are just not interested in being part of that agenda just because it might be convenient for you. I can't tell you how many times. So I grew up Catholic, didn't even know that women could be gay. That sounds corny, but I didn't know because the only thing I ever saw was people on the real world that were gay and they were mostly men. There was no women. They didn't have that story. They didn't share that story. And so I thought only men can be that. And when I realized who I was and was like, well, there's no way I belong in this church. They said that I'm, you know, all this, that I'm about animation and all this other stuff. And so I walked away and was like, I don't know what I believe in anymore. I don't think it can be God because he clearly doesn't believe in me, even though somehow he created me. So where do I go? And, you know, I actually for a while lived in this idea of like karma of like, you know, bad things happen to good people because I thought being gay was quote unquote bad and it was happening to me. I thought bad things happen to good people because good people are going to do something with it and that's how they'll change the world. So that's how I looked at me being gay. That's what it meant for me to figure out what faith might be. And, and eventually I came back to Christianity on my own terms when I understood it in my way, but I still struggled with all those Catholic rules. So like I had to read the Bible every day. I had to pray every day. And just, I got lost in that again. And just, you know, being celibate, saying I wasn't going to do certain things and I lost myself inside of that again. And finally, I reached a point where I was like, I want God. I want faith. I don't yeah. want these rules. I don't want to be in a Bible study debating all our different perspectives of how we, we interpreted a single verse, because if it is alive, it's going to speak to you in a way, every different way, every single time you read it, if the word is actually alive. That's so funny. I just started, I decided I'm going to reread the New Testament and I just started for the first time in my life. I'm reading it without the commentaries, without picking a different commentary from professors, from theologians, from pastors. I'm reading it as it was written as it with nothing on the side, no notes, nobody else's head in there, mm -hmm. but mine. Yeah. And you know, I'm hoping that God will speak to me without hearing this pastor or that pastor of my past. Mm -hmm. I just want to know, I just want to know Christ. I just want to know God. Yep. And I know how he feels about me. And I certainly don't think he does not love me because I am gay. And I do believe that he created me this way. Why do people accept that there are physical differences with people when they're born. Not every, not every, you get, my, my son, I always use the example, he has these two little holes in his ears, here and here, like 3% of the population have them. The doctor said it's some kind of an allergy. It's a weird, little tiny holes. She's born that way. Nobody ever looks at that. They go, that's God being created. Are we even believe in God? That's just a created, he's not in the, 90th percent of the people who have normal ears. Why, why do we not accept that sexuality can be the same thing? What is, why can't God make somebody different? Uh, we have animals that mate with their same kind. It's an abnormality, but they do. And we don't, we just go, oh, that's just 
sometimes that happens. Why, why don't we not accept that with people? I mean, I, we don't accept yeah, other. Oh, sorry, Greg. You no, had no, a I'm delay. Just, I'm sorry. You had a delay. I didn't realize you're still talking. No, no. I, I, you, if you don't cut me off, I'll never stop talking. <laughs> um, but I think that's true for religion too. I think that's true for race. You know, if if the God I believe in is who He says He is, He, She, whatever, then that means everybody's belief system is tied into all of this, and that goes true for your belief system about mine it doesn't have any less value or isn't any less true because it's your truth. That's how the higher power is speaking to you. That in the end, and I don't get to decide that truth for you. I don't get to decide the way this higher being that is the, you know, Einstein said either everything's a miracle or nothing's a miracle. This is all a wash. And I believe this is all a miracle. And if it is all a miracle, that means that whatever's in charge of all this banana, like crazy thing of being a human, it's, it's, it can't just be only one thing. Because if we all are grains of sand, that can't mean that there's only one way to worship or know a higher power. That yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. The same that's true for race, that same that's true for sexuality, um, how you wear your hair. But you can't get to that spot if you don't even like yourself. And you meet all the things that are, quote unquote, the, the, the majority. If you don't like who the hell you are, everybody is going to be a threat to your belief system, how you love, everything. I mean, to me, this is the inner work of a lifetime. If you can't sit down with yourself, I mean, you're talking to you. I say it all the time on this podcast with everybody. You spend the most time with you than anybody else ever will on the planet. You're talking to yourself all day, all day. You probably don't even All share. Yeah. <laughs> you, you probably don't even and share. Say about ourselves in our head. I, I don't know. I can't speak for everybody else, but all day for years and years and years, everything about myself was negative. And it was beyond superficial things like, oh, your nose is too big. You're too skinny. It wasn't even stuff like that. It was because I was told you are an abomination. Even though they weren't saying that about Greg, they were saying gay people are. And so you hated myself. Most gay people do. You know, in fact, if you start reading gay people's stories, mine is just as boring because it, it fits right in with everybody else's. It's just, we, we hated ourselves. We hid, we were ashamed. We were afraid of hell. We were afraid of our parents. And that that's the story. And gosh, what even takes that into account when they, they're just answers. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry for that. You need to pray more and don't be gay. Just don't be gay. All oh, that just that's sad for you. Just don't be gay. Yeah. Don't act on it. Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing too about that is like, you know, the 37 years I've been on the planet, the 47 years you've been on the planet. By the way, I have to correct you. I am 50. I'm 50. 50 now. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you said 47. I am so sorry. Uh, that's when I came out at uh, okay. 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 I'm sorry. My bad. Well, 47. Okay. Th so this still fits. Let me, let me go on. All right. So, at 47 is the first time you took what was inside of your head and made it to the world. But for 47 years on the planet, you knew what was in your head. You knew what was in your heart. You knew your truth. And this is something I think that's really hard for people when we come out is that they have their own interpretation of us. They don't know all the questions, all the thoughts that are in our heads unless we verbalize them. And I think that's you know offering our families quite frankly, time to grieve the idea of who they thought I was going to become. You know, I came out at 23, my parents, had to grieve what they thought I was going to be, who I was going to marry, maybe the children That's I was going to have. Fair. That's fair. And, a little bit. Of and, 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 and 
you know, that's, it takes time and that's not up for you to decide. And, and I have to think about that with my children. The best piece of advice I got through this is a, a friend of mine said, Greg, it took you 47 years to come to terms with you being gay. You, you got to give your kids more than 10 minutes. Yeah. And I went, um, that, that's a really good point. Yeah. And there's still not comfortable in all areas of my sexuality and who I am. It's not like overnight, if the baggage drops, right. it's a work in progress. And there are times, what, what, what do you do to keep yourself accountable? And what do you do to keep yourself accountable to your life's journey? I'll tell you what, when I start to feel negative um, and I start to feel less than, and this, maybe I am disgusting and maybe this is wrong. I just read the stories of other people who have gone through something similar. And it, it, that's what I do. I read, I read, I read, and I listen. Mm-hmm. We go hang out at, you know, bars sometimes, you know, gay bars. And I talk to the elder men about their lives and what they went through. And that's the thing that keeps me going is yeah. because I'm not alone. And there are way people that had a way worse. And they show me that they, they're capable of love and of being a human being. And that's what gives me comfort and peace. Before, yeah. when I isolated myself, I didn't know gay people. I, you know, I didn't know their experience. So it was foreign. It, it, it's like foreign, like, you know, in those pockets of Arizona where the polygamists live. That is so in another world from you and I. It's like, could be, it might as well be on another planet. And I'm not here to talk about and, and promote polygamy. But, gee, I bet you if we spent some time with some polygamists, we, we might go, you know, this has not been as presented. It's not my way of living, but it's certainly not as scary or as frightening as, as I thought it might be. These people seem genuinely happy. You know, it's perspective, man. Yeah, for the sure. Only time with your own kind, you're never, you're never going to grow. Right. Well, and that's why ideas of our, you know, own kind, that's, that's why certain people aren't allowed at the table because people have been uncomfortable with something that looked different. And, you know, I am mind blown by people that were trailblazers that were pushing the envelope before we had access to the information that we do now. You know, I mean, I've read some books about redlining and just white people that were taking out mortgages so that black people could have homes and saying, fuck the system. I'm not like, that's amazing to me being blacklisted, knowing you can't ever buy a house, but you knew what the right thing was to do. And you did it. I've never heard of that. I've never heard that expression. It happened here in California, right here in California. Color of Law is a great book. It talks about all the redlining that happened in California and how the neighborhoods became what they are and why factories were built in the first place and all that other stuff. It's a really great book. But, you know, I think about people that stood in the line of fire and had so much more to lose than me. I'm doing them an injustice by not being me. And... Uh, that just kind of got me choked up Um, because that's why we're here. And that's why we're here. And the more that we do that, the more we're telling kids, you matter, who you are matters, how you show up matters. Um, And letting them grow into that, letting them decide. We don't get to decide their truth. Let them figure that out for them. Yeah, we're going to guide them. We're not just going to like throw them out and wish them the best of luck, but like, why are, why do, why are we restricting them? Why are we telling them what is good and what is bad? It just is. People just are. And like, you made a point about like, you know, conservative and liberal. 
we don't talk about our how who we are as human beings like that because we really all kind of are conservative in some things and liberal in some things. We don't we aren't black and white in our ideas. We are very yeah. gray. We're much more ambiguous than we give ourselves credit for. And yeah. I think it also scares us because when we look at other people, we see the ambiguity and we don't know what to do with that. And and it's probably to be fair, the truth of our own selves of sitting with, you know, I know I don't actually hate people. And yet I don't know what to do to unpack the ideas and release them that are no longer true for me, familial, whatever that might be, or, or racism, whatever that might be. You know, it's, it is work. It is much easier to be complacent and just say, yeah, it's what it is, especially if you're on the side of privilege. Yeah. And I, and I've been schooled in white privilege and I, I had a hard time with that at, at first, you know, I, you know, I, I, I fought against that and I went, I, you know, I, I had felt I had been blamed all my life for being gay, being a gay person, right? And and yeah, I had no choice in the matter, right? I didn't have any choice of having the feelings I did. And so why am and so then when I was like, well, you're also at fault because you're a white man. And I'm like, how is that my fault? I cannot control the fact that my we were a middle income family and my dad sent me to college. Um, but then a, a friend of mine who's, you know, a lot, like you said, is kind of in the middle of the road explaining what white privilege really is about it's not about it's not about you're a bad guy it's not it's you have nothing to feel guilty about because you've done nothing wrong it's just the acknowledgement that you've had maybe some doors open for you that other people would never have access to mm -hmm. and it's, it's just about knowledge and seeing what you can do what we can do as a society to help open doors for more people when it was explained to me like that i was like okay let's take away some of the rhetoric that makes a lot more sense yeah. You know, so, you know. No, I think you made a valid point because I think that's an instant response for most people that have benefited from white privileges. Well, I didn't ask for it. I'm not saying you asked for it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that you didn't gain in some perspective of that. Um, yeah. And I think there is shame around it. There's a lot of guilt around it because it's something you didn't ask for. You know, I'm a mixed kid and I've benefited from the whiteness and also didn't benefit from the whiteness. So, you know, people didn't know what I was. And, and then I look the way I look, you know, I, sometimes there's a gift of that because I don't, every room I go in, I know exactly who's team Jen and exactly who is completely uncomfortable with my existence wow. and they out themselves. And now I know you're not, you're just not part of my tribe. And it's also an opportunity for me to, take your discomfort and challenge it just by existing on the planet. Gosh, I really hope we don't have to talk about this in 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> now it's, I just, well, I hope we just move on to something else. I, I hope that people's identity and sexuality is not such a trigger that just upsets so many people because really in, in the scheme of things, it, 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 it is an issue. It is a hot button issue. That's one of the few that, that does not affect one other person other than the person who's identifying that and the person they choose to love. That's it. Yeah. <sighs> okay, I'm, I'm done. I, I still <laughs> process a lot of this. And you know what? It didn't help that somebody posted today on Facebook that you know he's, he's gay and somebody from uh, his church sent him a message and it was something about what you're doing is an abomination and you need to repent. And then at the end, she said, don't worry, I'm here for you. And she's representing 
godliness. She called him an abomination, told him he needed to repent and return to God. But don't worry, I love you. I'm here for you. And that that just sent me over the edge. And that was today. And and some of the things that you were talking about and has happened to you. And I, I, I guess I'm starting to get angry a little bit. It's fair. I try really hard to understand everybody's perspective. I really try to take the middle road on a lot of things and say, that's okay that you think that. And that's okay that you think that as long as we get along. Sometimes, sometimes it's okay to not get along. If it's going to change the way people think, maybe it's not a good idea that we always get along. Yeah, yeah. I think if we're getting along, there's a problem. <laughs> like there's no way everybody's okay with what you're doing. There's no way that there isn't some sort of conflict to be addressed. If if there isn't something to be talked about, you know, I just there's always a reason for us to move forward. And um, you know, the beauty of that is that I can I cannot like you. I can completely disagree with you, but that doesn't mean that I can't sit here and listen to you. That right. I, I can't hold space for you. And I think that's often what happens is we have, it, it's almost like the goal of the conversation is to prove who's right or wrong versus just letting it be. There's mm -hmm. no right or wrong. It's just a personal truth, a personal perspective. You know, one time I was, um, when I was like really bent into the church and like volunteering and do all the things you're supposed to do because, you know, that's what you're supposed to do. I was volunteering in a food line and, a, and an older gentleman um, came up to me and asked me, I knew why he was asking me, he said, so just wondering what's your relationship with, with Jesus? And I said, what's your relationship like with your wife? And he said, well, that's none of your business. And I said, nor is yours about mine with Jesus. How I worship and love is none of your business. It doesn't impact you. It's not your faith. It's my faith. It's my hope. It is my love. It is my truth. What, what do you have to say about that? And did you shut him up? Oh, yeah, he just walked away from me. He didn't have yeah. anything else to say. That was yeah. the last time I volunteered there. <laughs> the story is like, I'm work, I volunteered for so many things at church and I was serving the church and serving the God in, in church, but they won't let me go because of my sexuality. That's, you know, that's the biggest disservice all religions have done with homosexuality is, is telling those people you can't have God and those people like me believing it. Yep. I missed God out for the first year and a half after I moved out because I had told, I, I don't have him and I would go to hell. So I just gave up and that stole God from me in a relationship with God for a year and a half. And by listening to other people, mm -hmm. that's just at the very best. Couldn't the church just say, hey, we agree with it, but you're loved and you're welcome to come here and worship so you can get to know God better. And if they're truly concerned that it's wrong and that God is wrong, is not okay with it, then if you have a good relationship with God, God will deal with you. Yeah. The church doesn't need you. I feel very firmly that if God is who he, she, they say they are, if we are all supposed to be in heaven, whatever that means and looks like, regardless of your religion, regardless of your beliefs. I have a hard time believing that once you die, that's it. And you just sent to whatever the hell that is. I, I just have a hard time. I feel like if God is a father, if this is this nurturing being, not 
man, gave you the things you needed in your life for you to thrive, even if it was ugly, even if it didn't make sense to you. Handpicked. Your story is handpicked. How you aren't set down. And then you just have like a little, literally come to Jesus moment with you and being like, you know, you remember uh, Friday, January 17th? That was a rough one for you. But you know where you made up for it? You know where you did good? And like seeing the celebrations of where we, we did it better and honoring that. That's what I see happening when we leave this planet. And it's not because of how I worshiped or where I necessarily volunteered. It's how did I love and how did I love myself, which allowed me to love better by loving myself and doing that work on me so I can go back into the world and love in a higher, higher capacity, in a more present capacity. And then that brings me back to me to be able to be aligned in my faith, whatever that might be, or my spirituality, and then grow my self-love so that I can invite somebody back into that same journey. That to me is what it means to be on this planet and living a purposeful, meaningful life and figuring out whatever that might mean for you from a faith standpoint. And it's and, and to add to what you're saying about how many gay people have lost that, have been stripped of that because somebody told them they had no damn worth, that makes me irate. But I've met straight people that got the same story because they had premarital sex, because they got a divorce, that were disowned from a church because their husband cheated on them and they wanted a divorce and they wanted to get out of that. And then so she's punished. She's punished yeah. because she was in an abusive relationship. That doesn't make any sense to me. When do we start letting each other off the hook for being a human? We make mistakes and just lean into the idea of how do I better love myself so I can better love humanity around me? And when am I going to stop letting other people's shit affect me? Because it's not your shit. Sorry, tangent. Yeah. You know what? <laughs> so, Jesus wraps it up and says, you know what? The two top commandments in love, your, love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law could be summed up in two things. I don't see anything about who you, your sexuality and whether or not you've been married and divorced, whether or not your husband, I don't see any of that. It's just, this is the command, love God and love your neighbor. That, can we maybe just stuck to that for a while or at least focus on that and not all the stuff about if, which, which are translations could be totally misinterpreted on a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, that we don't quite understand. That's easy to understand. We may not really have all the answers about how God felt about homosexuality. I really don't think it, in the Bible it's really talked about because they didn't have the concept of modern homosexuality about wanting to get married and be in a relationship. They didn't have that concept. They also didn't have the concept of birth control back then. They didn't have the concept of yeah. infertility treatments. So they didn't talk about those things. Mm -hmm. So since there's so many things that they don't talk about that we wrestle with over in this culture, whether it's right or wrong, couldn't we just sum it up to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love your neighbor as yourself and then rest, we'll just figure out as we go. Well, now that you say that, Greg, if we're gonna talk about love my neighbor like I love myself, maybe what we're seeing that hatred is really just the love of thyself. Hmm. I never really thought about that till you just yeah. said that. You know, people are, you, 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 I just don't understand when you can hate somebody if you're on a journey of self-reflection and self-love and trying to be the best version of you. I just don't get it. Ir people can irritate you, but yeah. really a lot of times that's- you know, Well, yeah, I, I think I'm a lot nicer person since I, this is the first time I made a big decision that went outside of everybody's desires for me. And when I did that, 
that's when I started to have a lot more empathy for others. And I stopped judging such a cliche, but I did stop judging people. I was so quick to, if somebody did anything that was slightly immoral, I was like, well, they did this and they did that. And now I just can't, I, I have such a hard time judging anybody. I, I mean, in society, we have to judge. That's why we have judges. So there are things that we have agreed in society are wrong. So we can't get, I don't think we could ever get rid of the concept of right or wrong. Um, but I just, when people make choices that are not my business I, or hurting you know, me or society as a whole, or it, it's just hard to just blame. It's just hard to judge people. It just really is. And if there is a time to judge people for something they've done, it's so much easier now to forgive because I've been forgiven a lot too, you know? My kids didn't ask for this because I had a self-identity. My kids didn't ask for that. I need to be forgiven by them. Um, and so it's easy to forgive others now because I was not the perfect kid that I was thought that I was. And I was very self-righteous, yeah. even though I was miserable. Inside. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, that's the, the places where I was the most self-righteous in my life is probably safe to say I felt threatened in some capacity by whatever that person was bringing to the table that I felt like I needed to be superior in some capacity. And I, and I agree with you too. Like we do need to categorize. It's how we function as human beings. Like you, that's how we literally analyze space and, you know, judge the world around us. So we can just walk down the street or walk down the stairs. We, we need to categorize certain things, but like, at what point do we learn to not let that get in the way and create biases that prevent us from really the joy of knowing other humans? Mm. Listening, I just, I want to listen to people. Yeah. I used to talk and I still do, but when it comes to people's story, people who are different, I want to listen more and talk less and empathize more. Even if I disagree, I just don't want to be so bold as to tell them every single thing I think they don't need it. They just sometimes just need to listen and, and be empathetic. That's what I was looking for, still am. So yeah. I think I'm a better person in that way. I don't think I'm a better father now, even though I don't get to see my kids. Um, and I really think I'm a better child of God because I was pretty proud of my relationship with God. Me and God were tight because I followed every one of his commandments and I was a good kid. And now I've caused, whether it's good or bad, what I've done, I'm not as high and mighty. And it's really made me humble. And I think that's where God wanted me. I don't think God wanted me to be as arrogant and boastful as I was. I think he wanted me mm -hmm. humble. Mm. certainly depend on him more and appreciate more of him you know taking charge of my life instead of me thinking I was just so great that I could do it all on my own because God was on my side and he was there if I needed him but certainly I was God's boy I'm humble now in a lot of ways yeah hmm. that's interesting to feel like you always have like a backup plan of God of like a, a, in your back pocket of, yeah, well, at least I have this of like yeah. shifting your perspective and just saying, you know, we're all trying to find that version of that thing in our back pocket. That is our lifeline, our parachutes, our North star. And um, it's really hard to find it. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know what you believe, if you don't, um, have anybody to talk to like this, quite frankly. I mean, you could talk like to yourself like this all day, like we talked about for years. And if you have nowhere to go with it, what a personal hell. Yeah. Yeah. The personal hell I live with got to the point where 
it was just as bad as the real hell that I thought I was going to. Hmm. So that's, I mean, like, choose your poison. I was like, choose your poison. This is hell. This is terrible. Yeah. You know, when all you think of, I'm better off dead. And you, I thought about death on and off for years. It's just much better. And, and I'll tell you this last story. I did have a, a guy who I still like. I know it's going to sound crazy, but when I came out, he found out and he was a very strong Christian. He said in not so many words that it would have been a better idea if I had killed myself when I was married and gone to heaven and left my wife, embraced homosexuality, and now on my way to hell. Now, he didn't say it like that, but he definitely said it. And he even said, boy, that didn't sound very good. I'm like, no, it didn't. And uh, I think about that sometimes. I still think about that and that I'm better off dead. So you, we think that as gay people sometimes, right? Before we come out, we're better off dead. But when you hear it from another human being, that actually says you might have been better off dead. Yeah. Oh, that made me sick to my stomach. I'm, I'm really sorry that you had to hear someone say that to your face. That is, and it's weird because that's that's the example that I'm telling you. I, I can be more. I don't agree with this guy, obviously, but I can still find room in my heart to love him when I see him because I'm I know I'm not perfect either, and I'm I'm just humbled now, so I can forgive him for that, even if he didn't ask for forgiveness, and I can still appreciate things about him. And it's not going to be my best friend, but I can still be excited to say hi and glad to see you and have a conversation and go. You know what? He's flawed too, and so is Greg. Yeah. So. What's interesting to me is for him to think that just because you stayed in a marriage that inherently changed who you are, but that doesn't, you always are, uh, Greg, <laughs> like that, that's, he's essentially saying that like, you can be compartmentalized in that, like we have choices inside of this. Did you choice, choose to be a man? Did you choose to be straight? Did you choose, like, there's very few things that we really do. Like, even our passions, we're drawn to things for a reason. We like hobbies for a reason, you know? We And we don't like certain things for a reason. That is part of the plan of putting us on the journey to, to use us in a purposeful way. Who you were was never different, whether if you were married or not married, or if you came out, you didn't come out. You're still a, 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 a Greg and identify as gay. It doesn't change anything. It's such a bizarre thing to compartmentalize that like oh you are safe if it's in your head but if it comes outside it's no longer safe what yeah that's a good that's a very good point or like that way yeah so like you can be racist in your brain and that's cool but if you say it out loud it's not that's what you're saying yeah, loud. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> keep it inside yeah, yeah. and then i was not a good husband i didn't beat her and i wasn't mean we hardly ever fought after the first couple of years um but I wasn't because I wasn't attentive and I just yeah. showed up. That's a lousy husband. And she was okay with it as long as I was there. And I look back at that and I just go, you Christians or whoever, not just Christians, but people would rather me stay in a marriage where I was not a good husband in, or instead of being gay, where I'm a much better husband and partner. Yeah. And, oh, no, no, but, but it's because it's a man. Yeah. that's because it's a penis i just don't get it yeah. it's, it's an appendage <laughs> it's an appendage yeah for now there are some at the, at, you know what there's some aspects of him being a man besides the physical attributes that i'm sure i'm drawn to because like maybe that way but really when it comes down to this is a matter of parts this is a matter of body parts mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and 
I just don't care why people care so much. I mean, interracial marriages were illegal, you know? Yeah. And I don't, I mean, again, it's, I think it's a lot easier for us to say that makes no sense, but I think that's also yes. when you're doing that self-reflection of like, people aren't threats. <laughs> it's like who they are, aren't, is and not a threat to your life. My great grandchildren will say what you just said. And what did you just say? Something about what were they thinking? Yeah. You know, what were we thinking when we did not allow interracial marriages? What were we thinking when we allowed slavery? And what were we thinking when we did not give women the same rights as men? We always do that. Still I'm don't, saying, actually, still don't. <laughs> yeah, there you go. It's better, but it, you're right. It's certainly, uh, nothing is perfect. I mean, no. there's still discrimination. There's still race. There's still treatment of bad women. And even if society accepts gays, gay people as a whole, there always be some problems. Definitely, and there'll always be some discrimination. But I, I do want it to get better, and I do want my great grandkids to look at their great grandfather and go, "That poor guy. Why? Why did they do that to those people? Why? I don't get it." Yeah, I, I want that. I want that for that generation, and they will. Yeah, and I think us talking about it is really important. I just um, finished a book from a psychologist um, that was a Holocaust survivor, and she talks about when we start healing and talking about our traumas we free our children and our, and the people around us as well. If you don't, if you don't face your trauma, you, your own stuff, you know, you can call it self-truth. You can, we've all been impacted by what we've seen, even if it wasn't intentional harm, you know, all children have faced some sort of fear of abandonment just because of our inability to understand when a human walks away that they could come back. We've experienced it. And it's translated to some other ways of way we connect or don't connect and other such things. It's a fact of what happens to us as children because we don't understand, we don't have the concept of I'm going to bed right now. I don't understand that I'm gonna wake up and this person's gonna be here because I don't understand things yet. And it has impact. And if we don't handle our traumas and don't free ourselves, we make everybody else around us and generations before us be imprisoned. And that's a really short metaphor of racism, of, of how we treat women, of how the LGBTQ plus community is treated. I mean, if you look at any disparities, it really comes down to is an inability to heal our wounds and do better. And we can't heal our wounds unless we take ownership for them and call them out for what they are. And that means people need to lean into their truth. That means we need to work through the grieving system of being pissed off to um, numb, to being... Um, uh, you know, complacent in some ways and not knowing what to do next. And then just, you know, there's no perfect equation. You know, we're going to go through different cycles and different places in our life and different people are going to stir that up. But if, if you're clinging to, if you're showing up defensive, if you're showing up and you feel tension, that's information. And that's life directing you to something that is a space where you have a growth opportunity. At least that's how I see it. And oh, I mean, I, in, in, I, I, I'm not fulfilled yet either. I mean, I'm learning things from you that even now that I go, yeah, she's, she's right about that. And I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be there. I, no, I, none of us are. <laughs> and I, I do think sometimes people expect that of me now that I, I'm gay, that all of a sudden I'm going to understand every social justice cause and, mm -hmm and be behind every single one and have the knowledge of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm learning and I can, 
and that's how it's going to change with the LGBT community is more people like this having conversations, more people seeing that we're normal people um, and we're not here to take away your children. We're not here to <laughs> seduce your children. Just gonna, it's going to be conversations like this. And you know what? As much as I hate to say it, because it's, it's just, it's, when celebrities come out, it helps. It does. It, it really, it's so trite. But when big celebrities come out, it does normalize it yep. for people because like, oh, that was my hero. I loved him. And they are, well, maybe. Mm-hmm. And I found myself with that with my son, my youngest, as I was trying to tra- teach him that it was okay. I would bring up celebrities. We would watch movies. And I'm like, you know that guy or that girl? She's a lesbian. He's gay. I would bring that up because I know he was, oh, they're, they're a star. They're a movie star. It does help the cause a little bit. So this this yeah. football player whose name escapes me at the moment that came Carl. out a big step. Yeah. It was a very, very big step. Yeah. It's and destigmatized too. You know? Yeah. And yes. you know, the the head coach uh, Gruden from the Raiders being like, I couldn't be more proud of this man, you know. And you know, there's there used to be actually a, a football series. Um and it, it was it was based off of supposedly off of true stories. They didn't identify the players of some of the things they went through. And one of the stories was a gay linebacker that couldn't come out and was hiding his boyfriend and just would grossly be very like the definition of toxic masculinity of just overpowering, like um, womanizer, just trying to feed into this idea of what makes a man have value, which is such bullshit. Um, and, And leaning into that because he was so afraid of being outed and when you have people step into their truth and they're still active players and they show like, yeah, he's not trying to hook up with everybody in the locker room. That's not what's happening there. Like that's, yeah. that's not that's everybody's been... first thought. That was everybody's yep. thought. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be everybody, honest. Yeah, I, I, I was interested. Shower. Yep. I was interested on how people would comment and they do this with women too, of like, um, like when the kicker from Vanderbilt, just people are, why are y'all trolling a girl that just broke records? Why are y'all trolling a guy that is going to be a reason a kid might not commit suicide? That's what you're worried about is that a guy that, that might, that might, oh, I would never want him looking at my ass. And guess what? He's probably not looking at your nasty ass in the locker room, to be honest with you. So you should probably tone it down a little bit because he doesn't really give a shit about you. Okay. That's the other thing you know, thinking and that you know, people, people are checking out everyone. Like, we are. I, absolutely. Yeah. Every single man that we have, you know, I have straight male friends and I get asked all the time, what do you have crushes on any of them? You know, I don't, any more than if I was straight, I don't, if I was straight, I don't find every woman attractive. If yep. I, you know, I don't <laughs> find every man attractive, but when I have some of my students who lean homophobic and they say, oh, some guy thought I was good looking or whatever. I'm like, I don't care if a girl, a man, a dog is attracted to me. You should find yourself lucky that someone's attracted. That's a wonderful thing. Who cares? They're not going to hit on you. But the thing that you, this guy likes you and he's, he thinks you're cute or whatever. Good congratulations. Right. You should right. give it as a compliment. Right. The, the masculine, the, oh no, I, he might touch me. He's not going to touch you. Right. It doesn't happen where homosexual men just go up very often that I hear and just start attacking heterosexual men. Another right. one of the misconceptions. 
Well, maybe I'm just, this is me just being off the cuff here and just like floating with it. My, my question is, well, maybe that's what men think they can do because men do that to women. They just touch them. They just say what they want to them. Yeah. Yeah, they do. You, you can't even you walk down the damn street with getting catcalled or assuming that because you wear a dress that you're a free game. So right. if that is the agenda or oppressed on men to think of that, that they have that ability to do whatever the hell, say whatever the hell they want to women, maybe that's why they have a fear around gay men, not to mention other problems, but you know, maybe that's what they're translating that into is, well, that's how I treat women. So I want a man treat me that way. Interesting. Yeah. I got to, to sit with that one. I didn't think about that. I didn't either till just now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's the beauty of this podcast is random things come up like that. And that's the gift too, is interacting with somebody we, you know, we've met on the phone for 15 minutes, but you know, I didn't okay. see you in person and just what can happen when two people are genuinely curious about what it means to be a really good person and what it means for me to show up. And can I offer that invitation to somebody else with my own story? Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Like you said earlier, that the more you do it, the more free you are, the more you talk about your trauma. And I mean, even now, I'm a little bit more calmer at the end of this session than I was at the beginning, because when I do talk about my story, and uh, I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but the trauma that I did go through as a kid and an adult, it does help. It, it does help every time. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope someone watches this and I hope somebody reaches out to me and, and says, I'm so glad I watched this because I was miserable and you said something. I mean, gosh, I got to make it worth more than just Greg got to be free and got to be who he was. Mm-hmm. It has to be, or I have to be part of a bigger story. I've got to be able to help people or I'm going to feel very self-centered if all I did was just for my wanting to love and have a, have a life. I got I got to help other people. And there are people in my situation that who are coming out later in life because it's more acceptable mm-hmm. and they are losing their children like me. Mm-hmm. That we talk about young people coming out and they lose their parents, but there are some of us who have lost their kids. And I'm not saying it is not one of the hardest things in the world for kids to lose their parents when they come out. But as bad as that is to lose your children has to be double as worse. It is the worst horrible thing that i can ever imagine and they're not dead but i've lost them and there is no pain greater and if i can help another father who's going through that so they don't commit suicide because of their kids or help reunify a family i i hope so yeah i hope podcast does it too i appreciate that you know i do believe going back to the freedom thing i i don't remember who said the quote somebody said you know not all women are free until like just because one person is set free doesn't mean all of them are set free and it's the work of a lifetime to set each other free to offer each other grace and love inside of this journey because we're all still trying to figure it out i'm going to be if i'm lucky to live to be 100 years old i'm still going to be figuring shit out i'm still going to try to figure out how i can do better and how i can grow and why and is my neighbor okay. irritating me <laughs> and it's okay i'm realizing to change my mind it, 100 you said five years ago that's not who you were 10 years ago no and i'm I, i'm gonna probably change my mind on a lot of things in yep. 10 years from now yep uh, and in another thing and my answer to that is i hope so yeah, hundred percent. Every single thing I thought when I was twenty is not the exact same way. Yeah, there's certain things that always stand by mm-hmm. and opinions and beliefs. 
but I don't want to be that guy either. That doesn't grow and change by listening and reading and learning, Mm -hmm. growing. Yeah. The maturity of it to, to, and it's like, to me, it's like a tree where you started with the roots of who you are as a kid. And some of them stayed, some of them rotted out, they needed to go. And then you had to graph other parts in and you're growing Mm -hmm. this really beautiful thing and you can't produce fruit unless you fertilize it and water and take care of it and nurture it in a way that's meaningful and purposeful and, you're going to have to let go of some things. And, you know, you know, someone asked me why I started the podcast. This has been like a four year and four years in the making. And like, I don't know if I could handle all the conversations that I'm having the same way I do now. In fact, I'm guarantee I probably wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing now because this isn't an accident that we met right now, Greg, having this conversation right now. And even if someone doesn't listen to it until 2023, yeah, it's it's on it's there. It's there. And it's, it's and there. that person's going to be ready because you have to be able to receive it too. You can't yeah. learn until you're ready to I, receive it. I wasn't it. ready. I was not ready until 47 years old. That was when I was ready. And that's okay. People say, Oh, are you bummed that you came out so late in life? I say, no, because I got three great kids. I didn't have a bad life. I wasn't you know, I was unhappy, but I, it wasn't a bad life. I certainly millions of people around the globe have a way worse, but I came out when it was time for me to come out yeah. 47 mm-hmm. and I'm okay with that. Yeah. And there's yeah. always something that we're quote unquote coming out from. There's always something new to have to share outside of the world. Again, you're talking to yourself all day long. You're taking your own world experiences. Sometimes you don't digest them. I'm just now talking out loud this year. And a lot of it's starting because of the Asian hate happening of what it actually means for me to reconcile of being a mixed kid that's part Japanese. I didn't even feel comfortable talking about that. I'm 37 years old. I didn't even think I had a place to talk about it because I wasn't Asian enough. And now I'm 37 and I'm talking about it. Now I'm 37 talking about the ways that I wish I would have been able to know more about my culture and how much I'm grieving what's lost because my grandma's gone now. Our history's gone now recipes, stories, and we're all doing it. And I wasn't ready for it. I wasn't ready for it 10 years ago. I'm ready for it now. And that's why it's something that's that's in the forefront of something that I'm trying to understand about myself and, you know, gay, straight, whatever, even if you aren't anything, you are always trying to come to the truth of who you are in some capacity. I like that. I like that. We're always coming out shouldn't just be reserved for the LGBTQ plus community. We're all going to come out on different things for the rest of our lives. And you say, you hope you do. We hope you do. Mm -hmm. We hope nobody stays the same. Because that's how we thrive. That's how we thrive. You know, like you were talking about different types of relationships. Like, yeah, you were married. It was, it was fine. But what's the difference between just being alive and thriving? to be empowered to step into your truth, to be empowered, to invite yourself to all of your capacity. Gosh, how much are we missing? Because we aren't tapping into our capacity. I just, you know, how many Einsteins are we missing? How many Mayas, you know? Yeah. And, and then when we normalize these conversations and look at all the ways that we've restricted voices and didn't let certain people sit at the table, can we bring those voices up so we can hear a little bit more? Because we've been missing out on gifts of people, on knowledge, on on new ways to learn and no, no idea is technically new. I, I think Einstein might've said that too, as well as like, no, no idea is just automatically birthed. It came from another idea. Someone else already sort of had that seed and that shows you how connected we are as humanity. Ideas are just being passed on. They're never new, 
they're just better and they grow and they're more inclusive. Repackage and refined, repackage and refined. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate the same way English literature class. Say that again. in, in adding to what you said, in English literature, I think there's seven plots. That's it. Every story is broken into one of seven plots that have been around for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. All we're telling, we find, we see a great movie and we go, that was the best movie, that was the best script, but the story is something that's been told thousands of years. Yep. It's just refining, repackaging, and I like that. So thank you. Thank yeah, you for and, yeah, for sure. I want to add to that too, but like that, like, even the gay stories, right? Or like, um, you know, allowing other gender identities and and races into the equation of those stories too, right? Like if you look at movies in the 90s versus the movies that we're seeing now, or the TV, like Netflix compared to, you know, what at Fox, ABC, whatever, that was before we had live running TV all the time. The, the storylines really haven't, you know, changed. Like rom-coms haven't changed. The, the somebody meets somebody, they're usually unavailable. Um, then they chase them. And then the person yep. realizes, oh, I made a mistake. I need, you know, they have their own version of a come to deity movement and then they fall in love and then they get married. Like <laughs> that's, that's the rom-com essentially, you know? And what I love about TV too, is like taking that, like that's not a lot of people's stories. That's really not how a lot of people had their life happen. And we got to stop comparing to that. And I love that TV and all these like movies and stuff are really looking at, no, what does it actually mean to be a person? I actually was listening to um, a report on um, Fast and the Furious from NPR and talking about how is it 20 years and they're having a ninth movie. And what they said was really interesting is that from the get-go, they use something really interesting that a lot of people don't know a ton about, fast cars. And then they sort of sold sex. But what was really interesting is that it was the first time there was a diverse crew where everybody had equal valued roles. And it wasn't about the diversity or the trauma or the pain of that group of individuals. It was the first time that 10 people would... Yep, just 10 people from all these different backgrounds with one common goal, all of them had an expertise to bring to the table, but they all looked different and they all had a very important role. And it invited everybody into the conversation over fast cars because that was something, or like cars that light up and all the other stuff. I just thought it was really interesting how the reason why they, you know, they're they're talking about- That's why And yeah. why they'll probably go to a 10th movie because you can't end a series on nine. It has to go to <laughs> You can't end it on an odd number like that. Yeah. <sighs> well, thank you again. Again, yeah, well, I thank you. Go and talk and be a better husband, like I'm talking about. <laughs> the veto sit on the computer. Uh, so, so to wrap up, um, if you want to give anybody social media to connect you to, or if there's an org you'd like to connect people to, um, I'll, before we log off, I'd like to offer you the mic to share however you'd like to share. You know, I, I pretty much like just anybody I'm on I'm on Facebook as my name, and I'm sure you'll probably put my name somewhere yeah, the um, show notes, uh, on the podcast. I mean, that's my name on Facebook. I don't have some weird name. I really like my Instagram name, and it's really fitting now. It, it's based off uh, Gregory the Great, you know, Gregory the Great, uh, the Pope, Gregory the Great, and I'm Gregory the Mediocre, <laughs> and that's what I want on my tombstone, you know? he was just a normal average guy he was okay you know not great not bad he was just okay that's my yeah that's my instagram gregory the mediocre 
Awesome. So I, I, I like to meet new people. I, I always love ads just because I want to hear people's stories. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time, Greg, and sharing such sacred parts of yourself with us in the world. Thank you. You can have me anytime. All right. Bye, Greg. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, y'all. I just wanted to take a quick moment here to reflect on my conversation with Greg. Woo! Um, so much of his story, oh man, I can relate to. And I'm, I, if you're part of the LGBTQ community, I'm sure you felt some of this in your bones. Um, the, the fear of losing family, um, the rejection, um, and not just losing your family, but losing your family of faith, whatever that might mean for you, your community, um, people deciding what's true for you. It's just, there's a lot of unnecessary harm, but I appreciate that he reminded me that that harm is because people don't know what to do. They haven't been armed with the tools to love themselves, to give themselves permission to be who they truly are. And if you don't do that, you can't allow other people to do that. You can't see people for who they are and the gift that they are. And you know, I call it a threat a lot and I, I should probably work on some better language to be fully transparent, but I just, I don't understand besides feeling threatened by somebody else, why an immediate response would be hatred, um, diminishing, dehumanizing. Um, it's almost as if we do this tally system of what decides somebody has value and worth. And our entire worlds have been based off of a cisgender heterosexual relationship monogamous on top of that. Um, that's what we've been told has value. That's what we've been told um, will make you successful. And it's a really hard narrative to combat your whole life to look at yourself and wonder of, man, do I not have any value? Do I not belong on this planet? And I really hope that Greg's story, if you're listening and you don't know if you matter, if you're listening and you're questioning, what will it mean for me to disown myself um, so that I can stay in relationship with other people. Um, I hope you hear the freedom that comes with that sacrifice, if it is even a sacrifice. Um, for me, on my own journey, being gay and coming out, and um, just to give a little bit of transparency on my own part, you know, I remember before I came out to my family, I felt it was really important to be emotionally and financially stable so that if I was stripped of their love and their belonging, I would be okay. And um, what I had to do to be there, what I, what I, if I got kicked out and never saw my family ever again, that's what I mentally prepared for. Um, and I had time to prepare for that too, you know, coming out to my family. They didn't know I was planning to come out to them. I, you know, spent years strategically planning how for them to not figure it out and then trying to figure out what would it mean for me to feel safe to come out and having to be okay with maybe family won't be blood. Maybe family means creating my own tribe. And that's where this journey really started for me of knowing that like, I'm going to attract the people that matter because they're going to, they're going to fully see me. They're going to fully see my worth and the gift that I bring to the table. Um, and it's a work of a lifetime, you know? It's not like every day I just feel really confident about everything. Um, I have to work at it. <laughs> Flex this, y'all. Flexing the muscles. Curiosity, self-love, um, 
wrestling with why is doubt showing up, um, wrestling with vulnerability hangovers when you share with somebody and um, are a little bit afraid, especially now with COVID of we're still at distancing, you know, we're opening back up, you know, but we aren't fully to where we were before uh, COVID-19 hit and, you know, trying to remember what it's like to socialize and be in groups and to share and um, hold space for people and, and, and honor their stories with integrity and sacred care of like they should be. And I'm just so grateful that uh, Greg took the time to share his story. Um, you know, hearing his story would have made a difference for me. I know that as a kid, knowing that, um, the conversion and aversion therapy and, you know, 28, 29 different therapists. Wow. That's just, that's a lot to take in for an individual. And, um, I, I hope his story is an invitation for you to lean into your own truth, for you to see how much value and worth it has to see that it's a work of a lifetime, you know, grappling with your belief systems um, the environment that you grew up in and trying to figure out your truth and, and knowing what is still my truth and can stay and what isn't serving me anymore. And that's going to look different now than it will 10 years from now, 20 years from now, um, 10 years ago. And just offer yourself grace on this journey. I think the thing I want to say is thank you for being here. Thank you for being on the journey because you have a choice. You can be complacent. You could stay exactly where you are and not let life move you, you know, and I'm, and I'm, and that, that breaks my heart on a whole nother level that people would choose that because it's safer. I once heard uh, Rachel, Naomi Remen talk about this. Um, when, when, you know, the Jewish people were leaving Egypt and they didn't want to leave and they were slaves and that we become slaves to the suffering we understand. And so if you're not ready yet, you're not ready for your, whatever your coming out is. Um, I hope this gives you courage to just figure out what you need to do that, to figure out um, what support you need, whether that's for yourself or other people, to be able to lean into your truth a little bit more. Because if you don't, we're missing out. We need you. We need every part of you. And I'm just so grateful that y'all are here on this journey. And I'm, I'm really grateful for Greg for sharing his with us. Until next time, y'all, um, I'll see y'all on the flip side. You can find us uh, on the Anchor page. There's a voice memo. I would love to hear what y'all think. Um, how did this impact you? What, what, what did you learn about yourself in this episode? I love hearing from y'all and um, helps me stay true to this journey to, to make sure that it's aligned in authenticity and truth and grace and just the beauty of humanity. Because we're special, y'all. Everybody's special. And I'm just so blessed to be here in this space. Till next time.